Welcome to the September 2017 edition of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. Our journal club is going to be on an article in the journal Cervical Spine Immobilization When Skiers Wear Helmets. And it'll be an interview with the author done by our own UNM Wilderness and Austere Medicine Fellow. And this is a timely article for the winter, or right now, if you are out skiing in Chile. I'm going to keep it real, summer or fall real. So first, we're going to cover the life aquatic with a discussion on scuba diving injuries discussed at the Summer Breckenridge meeting. Then we'll have a great primer on sunscreens, something that we use often and know little of. So let's get this boat sailing. Okay, it's summer. It's time for scuba diving. Yes, time to slap on a tank of compressed air onto your back. Now, what, oh, what would be wrong with that? Well, glad you asked. The WMS is making efforts to include more of aquatic medical emergencies in the curriculum, so why not start here? First, a little overview of some diving-related injuries. Then, we'll chat with the Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Neil Pollack, who is also a well-known physiologist in the diving community and the research chair of the Hyperbaric and Diving Medicine Center at the Université Laval in Quebec. I would like to buy a hamburger. 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 So what sort of bad things happen in scuba divers? Remember that as you go deeper underwater, the surrounding water pressure increases. If you're on the surface, you're at one atmosphere of air pressure, of barometric pressure. If you go down 33 feet or 10 meters under the ocean, under the seawater, and you're therefore at two atmospheres. If you go down another 33 feet for a total of 66 feet or 20 meters, you're at three atmospheres. So you decide to go deep with that nice tank of air filled to 3,000 PSI. An enormous pressure as well with something called an open circuit system. If you were to just simply connect a hose from the tank and take a big suck, your lungs would explode. But there's a special valve mouthpiece called a regulator that gently allows you to inhale air at a pressure that will fill the lungs normally. Years later, there comes a French naval officer, Yves Cousteau, a man who dreams of opening the door of Davy Jones' locker. He has invented a new kind of underwater breathing apparatus with tanks of oxygen to sustain the swimmer in the depths below. He plans a new kind of adventure, a free diving expedition, without air cables or lines, to the sunken wreck on the floor of the sea. The deeper you go, the more pressure on your rib cage. But then the regular puts more air pressure to counteract that ambient water pressure, and you exhale that carbon dioxide right out of the regulator. But here's the funny part. The deeper you go, the more pressure the gas is in that you breathe in. And since air is about 80% nitrogen and 20% oxygen, the respective pressures are what we would call partial pressures of those gases will also increase. And you can think of partial pressure kind of like concentration. So the concentration, in effect, of oxygen will increase the deeper you go. Not to worry, your body will metabolize that quite nicely. But sorry, 
nitrogen is not metabolized, but it is stored up in your tissues, facilitated by increased diving depths. Now, some would say nitrogen gas is inert, but no, no, no. Nitrogen in high concentrations goes into the brain, exerting a narcotic effect on the brain, causing something called nitrogen narcosis and is also responsible for decompression sickness, as we'll see soon. First, let's touch on nitrogen narcosis. The deeper you go, the more altered your mind gets. Now, some diving instructors would call this Martini's Law. Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. And Martini's Law is this. For every 50 feet deep you go into the ocean, that's equivalent to the effect of drinking one martini. And that means that deeper air dives can be deadly if a diver makes faulty judgments under the narcotizing effects of nitrogen, if you will. Keep in mind, all the tissues absorb nitrogen at different rates. Nervous tissue being fast, muscles absorbing slower, and fat even slower. And this is an exponential type of absorption. Dive tables, and more importantly, dive computers, mathematically calculate these absorption rates, but they're imprecise. So to prevent problems, don't dive too deep too long, so as to avoid saturating your body tissues with nitrogen. Cutting it close with dive computer times might cause problems. And what problems? Well, say you're at 18 meters or 60 feet underwater, then you ascend. The bubbles expand out of those body tissues. The less pressure, bigger the volume of bubbles. And this is what we call Boyle's Law. You can see that if you blow bubbles from the bottom and as those bubbles rise to the top, they get bigger and bigger to off-gas that nitrogen safely and not accumulating too much nitrogen and to employ a gradual ascent. Well, this will mitigate those bubbles from showing up in the muscles, joints, neural tissue, and whatever. And if this were to happen, you would get decompression sickness or DCS if those tissues show up in vital organs and spaces. If bubbles go in the joint, you get a type of DCS called the bends. Exercise and temperature will also accelerate nitrogen absorption or elimination. And intuitively, you might understand that a fast ascent to the surface while holding your breath after bottom breathing, or if an asthma attack happened, could cause those lung bubbles that would cause alveolar rupture and bubbles to go into the circulation there, bucko. So chest pain and dyspnea then will result in an air embolism in the lung circulation, colloquially known as the chokes. Now, if these bubbles go to the brain, air-mediated brain infarction or cerebral arterial gas embolism, this will usually ensue in seconds to minutes. Now look, folks, I know this is an oversimplification, and if you want to understand more, Please read a good review, such as one that just came out on decompression illness by Dr. Pollock in the 2017 edition of Emergency Medicine Clinics in North America. And keep in mind that although arterial gas and blood usually will manifest within 10 minutes, symptoms in the CNS, paresthesias, paresis, and so forth, skin rashes, inner ear problems, and the powerful bends might take from 10 minutes to 3 hours in 90% of cases, and and the remainder 24 hours after the incident. Some will take DCS and they'll divide it into two types, DCS 1 and 2, depending on severity, but for all intents and purposes, the treatment is the same. Well, keep in mind that neurological symptoms or spinal cord DCS might manifest as back pain, weakness, or sensory deficits in a non-dermatomal or CNS lobar distribution. Joint pains and some neurologic manifestations, according to the data, 
manifest in up to 60 to 70 percent of cases and paresis itself 20 percent skin rash or what is called cutis marmorata 10 percent of cases now for the most part we've discussed open water circuit scuba diving with air now wouldn't it be nice to just get rid of that nitrogen sure well this has been done you can get rid of some of that nitrogen and you can increase the oxygen from 21% air to say 32 or 36% oxygen in the air. This is what we call enriched air nitrox. And obviously we diminish the amount of nitrogen and increase the amount of oxygen. You could also rid yourself of even more oxygen by adding another inert gas that doesn't cause physiological problems such as helium. helium. Using helium is used in what we would then call technical diving, which doesn't allow CO2 to be blown off into the ambient environment, but it actually recycles it or it scrubs it out in what is referred to as a closed system. Divers can dive down to several more meters, hundreds and hundreds of feet, which can't be done with typical scuba gear. However, slight mistakes in technical diving can be deadly. So why not just scuba dive with 100% oxygen? Well, oxygen, when it reaches a certain partial pressure, well, seizures can occur, which is bad, bad, bad for being underwater. Interestingly, if you have a technical diver hundreds of feet below the surface who becomes severely dyspneic, don't think of DCS necessarily, but think of something called immersion pulmonary edema. At extreme depths, the extremity venous circulation can be compressed, potentially causing pooling of blood to the heart and lungs. And this is the mechanism by which we think this entity occurs. But there are certain risks involved with scuba diving. And they're not sharks or giant squid or whatever. Yes, there are sharks sometimes. And yes, I guess I wouldn't want to come face to face with a real life kraken. But they're not the threats that keep divers awake at night. What we worry about are the bends. That's what happens if you ascend from a dive too quickly or if you don't end your dive by waiting for a few minutes at 15 feet below the surface. If you're not careful, nitrogen can escape from your bloodstream and become bubbles. It's painful if there's bubbles in your joints or muscles, but a bubble in your brain could easily be fatal. Or if you accidentally hold your breath in a sin, the air in your lungs will expand, and as the pressure of the water around you decreases, you could feel an impact, a soft, gaseous pop, and that would be the feeling of your lung popping. And then there's the cold and the risk of exhaustion. Some people say they get the feeling of claustrophobia when they dive, but not me, not at all. I'm fine when I'm on the bottom or alongside a reef wall or in a wreck even, but for some reason, when I'm on the surface or when I'm doing a safety stop, I get agoraphobia and I get it bad. I think it's because when I'm on the bottom, I have a frame of reference and I know there are only so many angles something can come at me from. Plus, I'm never more than a few feet from my buddy, so I'm not constantly looking over my shoulder or anything. But when I'm on the surface or doing my safety stop, you don't know what it's like. You can't know unless you're a diver yourself, lingering there in the wide open blue, trying to control your buoyancy so you don't shoot up and kill yourself with a nitrogen bubble in your brain, or so that you don't drop back down into the depths. It's unnerving. And even if your buddy's at arm length from you, you can't possibly see something coming from below, above, to the sides, and behind you, all at once. Hell, even if your buddy's an arm lengths away, if you lose sight of him for a second, it can take a minute of frantically turning and looking around to find him, even if you do find him again. A careful ascent, so as not to cause DCS, can relieve, but then again, it may not always work. Oxygen and Lasix could also be used as well. 
And it seems that immersion pulmonary edema could also be seen in breath hold diving and triathletes for your information. Now, immersion pulmonary edema isn't treated with recompression chambers as opposed to DCS, which must be treated in the hyperbaric chamber. And by the way, did you know that there are portable recompression chambers made of Kevlar that can withstand three atmospheres? Now, if you were to go to the article that I just cited by Dr. Pollock, you would into it that, first of all, if you're suspicious of a diver having DCS, you'd want to get that person out of the water. You'd want to administer oxygen and do the usual ABCs and vital signs. There are some other things that are talked about as far as putative treatments, one of which would be hydration. And a lot of people think that they have to be hyperhydrated to avoid DCS, but that isn't necessarily true. But with DCS, you're going to want to think about during the initial phase of the ABCs, figure out how you're going to evacuate the patient. And the Divers Alert Network will provide you with a lot of information concerning evacuation. And they do assist its members in evacuation and treatment as well. So that's really nice. We are a low pressure read on the pipeline. We are a four-man saturation dive team. Now in your resuscitation, don't forget simple things like laboratory values to assess for hypoglycemia. And as you're getting the vital signs and you're doing a primary survey, do a good cardiac and lung auscultation to examine for diminished sounds on one side or for subcutaneous emphysema since you could have a patient with a tension pneumothorax. You also want to look at the ears. You want to do a good neuroexamination, skin examination, and an articular and abdominal examination, especially being wary for bladder distension that could be present with spinal cord DCS. In addition to good fluid administration for treating potential dehydration. There's some discussion about utilizing antiplatelet agents and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. You see, inert gas bubbles can actually cause inflammation. It can induce platelet accumulation, adherence, and thrombus formation. In some countries, such as France, aspirin is given as an adjunct for DCI patients. And there is this one trial that looked at adjunctive administration of an NSAID called tenoxicam to divers that suffered DCI, which demonstrated no difference on the residual symptoms at the completion of hyperbaric treatment. However, there was actually a pretty significant reduction in the number of treatments required, and there wasn't any evidence of complications with this treatment. But some might say that NSAIDs wouldn't necessarily be recommended in the first-line treatment of DCS because it could mask pain during a clinical examination for DCS. I'm not sure if I believe that or not, but we'll see. I was investigating a shore area in preparation for an underwater photography contest. The currents were not too strong and the water was quite clear. Heparin is not advised, but if somebody's going to be in a recompression chamber for several days, it may be wise to think about low molecular weight heparin. But when it comes to the recompression chamber, it's going to be the U.S. Navy table number six, and that is going to be the treatment. The faster it's implemented, the better the chances are, although there have been case reports of people doing well even several days after the onset of symptoms and still having excellent results in a recompression chamber. If you happen to be a diver at altitude, keep in mind that this really messes up a lot of dive tables and what we know about diving in altitude is pretty limited. So you have to use an extreme amount of caution and people who go deep or even somewhat deep in a lake at altitude can think, wow, they're getting all this oxygen while they're at altitude, but you can become severely, severely hypoxic and have attendant high altitude issues upon reascent to the surface of the water. So keep in mind that this is also a field that is pretty unknown at this point. We have discussed scuba, breathing gas under high pressure.
If you're breathing air and you go deep, you are subject to nitrogen narcosis, what we call Martini's law or rapture of the deep. If you stay too deep, too long, you may get DCS or decompression sickness on ascent when the bubbles come out of solution, cardiopulmonary and neurologic DCS or gas emboli in the arteries are fearsome. You must then treat with oxygen and the hyperbaric chamber. And lastly, be aware of emergent pulmonary edema in technical diving. Now we'll go to our editor-in-chief of the journal, Dr. Neil Pollack, who gave an excellent talk at the Breckenridge Conference about advances in dive medicine. And here we go. Thanks for being with me. I just wanted to ask you a few questions pursuant to the talk you gave. First of all, as you know, there's obviously a plethora of diving-related illnesses. And I just want to focus on DCS, decompression sickness, or age, arterial gas embolism, or cerebral arterial gas embolism. First of all, do we use DCS or DCI? And do we care if it's type 1 or type 2? Well, first, in terms of the nomenclature, you'd use DCS, decompression sickness, if you thought that was the disease. You were pretty sure that was the problem. If it's possible that you might be talking about a problem of arterial gas embolism, you could use the term decompression illness, which is the collective for the two. But normally, we would focus on decompression sickness, if that's what we thought we were referring to. And in terms of whether you're interested in talking about type 1 and type 2, that's a convenient separation between type 1 uh, being joint pain primarily, your, your pain only DCS, and type 2 neurological involvement. The problem is that that's a pretty outdated categorization. It's been found that most cases have a lot of blurring between pure type 1 and pure type 2. So what most people are looking at is the spectrum of symptoms rather than that not great categorization. With respect to DCS, we, or I should say you talked about some clinical clues with respect to the timeline, the onset, the type of pain. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? It used to be in years previously where people would say if a diver surfaced and had symptoms in less than 10 minutes, it was probably more indicative of arterial gas embolism. Those real fast onset symptoms would likely be associated with lung rupture and an introduction of bubbles that would go to sensitive neurological tissues. The problem now is that we have a whole different type of diving in technical diving, where divers are doing some extreme profiles such that they can have huge decompression obligations. And if they were to have a reason to miss that obligation, they could have symptoms developing even before they surfaced. So the old rule of if symptoms develop in less than 10 minutes is AGE is no longer purely valid. Now, if symptoms are delayed and they don't develop until at least 10 minutes post-dive, it does largely rule, reduce the likelihood of it being arterial gas embolism, and then it is more likely to be decompression sickness. And that holds until you go out 
beyond 12 hours or more, the longer you delay before the development of symptoms, the less likely it is to be decompression related. One thing I will add there is that we have to be careful to separate between when symptoms are reported and when they actually develop because a huge problem in diving is delayed reporting. And so you really have to try to separate the timeline, establish the timeline. And it sounds like that folks with DCS might be more likely to report a different kind of pain than, say, their usual pain, such as back strain or something like that. Is that correct? Well, when we talked about the type of pain, that's one that we found in terms of um, utility for raising the bar of suspicion. It's not so much a change in what people report, it's when they report and you talk to them. If you ask them whether it's a, a pain they've experienced before or if it's an unusual pain, it's quite common for people to who are experiencing decompression sickness to say, oh, this, this pain is unusual. I've never really felt anything quite like it before. And that raises the likelihood that it may be decompression related. One of the important things with regard to treatment is obviously evacuation. So couldn't I just call the Divers Alert Network and say, you know, I took a burrow, I took an alligator, and then I had to take a hovercraft to get to my dive site. Won't Dan just pick me up with a helicopter? And that certainly is what a lot of divers want. They somehow imagine that we have Star Trek technology and we can just beam them up when they're injured. It doesn't work. If you take a lot of different steps to get into a site, it's going to be very difficult to evacuate you. And divers have to consider that, and they want to build that into their conservatism. So I guess call 1-800-BURROW. That's great. Well, let's say the patient can't be evacuated, so I cannot initiate the hyperbaric treatment table six. So what about this talk about immersion back in the water again? Is this idea coming back, and what are the problems with that? Certainly the idea of in-water recompression has been around for a long time, and it's gaining more energy as a discussion topic amongst technical divers because they're often in very remote places and they might have fairly substantial DCS or they also may have the equipment that they feel they can treat the case with in-water recompression. In-water recompression can work when you have a, a quick response to the onset of symptoms, you put someone back under pressure and you will hopefully get a reduction if not a complete alleviation of symptoms and then you slowly bring them back up to the surface hopefully with no re-emergence of symptoms. The problem is you have to have a tremendous number of ducks in a row to do that safely. You have to have the right gases to breathe. You have to have adequate water conditions, adequate support so the diver is not alone adequate, I don't think I said thermal protection, to make sure that they are going to be able to manage that treatment. And there are a lot of things you have to get in a row, and you also then have to realize if things do progress badly, you are in a very difficult environment to keep someone alive. If someone develops a seizure or if someone goes unconscious or paralysis advances, you have a huge life threat. And so then you have uh, much more of a complicated situation than you would have if those symptoms developed on the surface. And so you have to be very, very careful to make sure before you initiate in-water recompression that you have the right equipment, manpower, 
understanding and conditions to do it safely. And the bottom line is, while it's a good idea theoretically, there are probably more cases in which it would not be a smart idea than when it would be your preferred choice. Yeah, and it sounds problematic in that you wouldn't be able to achieve the 2.8 atmospheres of oxygen that would be initiated under a dive table. You might have something less, but you could definitely still cause seizures to occur. Yes, that is a big concern. When someone is being treated on a standard U.S. Navy treatment table 6, they're breathing oxygen at 2.8 atmospheres. That's allowable in a hyperbaric chamber for a couple of reasons. One, those patients are completely at rest, so they don't have elevated CO2 that might lower the seizure threshold. And more importantly, if they do seize, it's actually not that problematic. You just remove the oxygen and have them breathe ambient air, and the seizure will typically abate, mm -hmm. and then you can continue on with what you have to do for them. If you have someone who seizes in the water, you have a much greater life threat. And there are a couple of things, well, there are several things that make the risk increase in water. One, as I mentioned, they're likely going to be doing a little bit more physical work just to maintain their position. Any physical exercise or heavy breathing can lower the, the threshold for seizure. They're in a very unforgiving environment. And so, bottom line, we would not want the same PO2 exposure in open water. Now, some people will say, oh, I think we can tolerate it, and that works up until the point that you have a seizure, and then you have a high life risk. And there's a lot of listeners out there that really like to use ultrasound in their clinical practice. Wouldn't the presence of bubbles in a cardiac chamber indicate that somebody has DCS? Bubbles are a good indicator of decompression stress. And so we use them as a research tool. We can compare different exposures with the same subject, and we can see how the patterns of bubble presentation in the vascular system change. There is some variability day by day, but we can get a pretty good insight as to whether or not an exposure is generating higher decompression stress or lower decompression stress based on the bubble load that's produced. However, we don't equate bubbles with decompression sickness. So we don't treat bubbles. We monitor for bubbles, but we treat symptoms. If you think about it, if someone is asymptomatic but they have bubbles and you treat them, what have you treated them? Hmm. There's no change in the clinical picture necessarily. And so bubbles indicate the stress and the best evidence we have suggests that a high bubble load may give you a 40% probability of developing DCS. What we're more interested in demonstrating to our divers is how they can change their practice to reduce their bubble loads. Because we also know that a diver who has no measurable bubbles we have about a 95% confidence that that diver will not develop any symptoms. And so bubbles are a great, or the absence of bubbles is a great negative predictor of DCS. No bubbles, likely no problem. Well, I have with me Dr. Joe Alcock. You remember Joe, we talked a little bit about bacteria in the gut microbiome a few podcasts ago and today I thought I would just pop into Joe's place and ask him a little bit about sunscreen since the theme of this month has been diving injuries but of course when you go diving you're hopefully going to get a little sun. So Joe I want to talk a little bit about some other things because so many people are against using sunscreen so what other things can help mitigate against sunburn besides using those yucky sunscreens? Well 
there are lots of things that we can do. And the reason why I'm excited about sun and sunburn, and this is a topic which is near and dear to my heart, is that I had a horrific sunburn back in the day. This is, I grew up in Arizona, went skiing, didn't wear any sunscreen, and got just the, a worst, the worst blistering burn. I got UV keratitis in my eyes. Ooh. I had to go to the doctor. I think they gave me prednisone and a bunch of stuff to slather on my skin, which none of, the, none of that stuff worked. And I peeled and looked like a, a zombie character for a few days. It was very embarrassing going back to school. Uh, so I've been very attuned to this whole sun thing. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal, especially living here in New Mexico. And if you're going on a dive trip, that's one thing that can ruin your dive vacation. So I'm kind of wondering if I were to worry about getting a sunburn, could I use something like NSAIDs, topically antihistamines? Does Benadryl, does oral steroids help as far as getting a sunburn or the after effects of a sunburn? Ah, the prophylactics. Yeah, what can you do? So I didn't quite get to your first question, which is what can we, how can we mitigate you know, sunburn? What can I do besides uh, sunscreens? And we'll, we'll talk about hats and clothing, lycra and wetsuits. Of course, those are going to provide a lot of protection. But you asked specifically about drugs and what drugs can we use for uh, sunburn to prevent sunburn or to mitigate the effects of sunburn. You might think that because sunburn is kind of an inflammatory reaction and it's caused by DNA damage. So when you, you do a little histology and look at the skin, you're going to see vasodilation, endothelial cell swelling. You can see some, some blood which has migrated into the tissues. Histamine is released. There's a lot of things. So you might think that you could use anti-inflammatories, maybe prednisone or steroids, and maybe you could use a nanohistamine. But it turns out that when they've looked at things that can mitigate sunburn, if you, if there are certain studies showing that antioxidants, if you give them before uh, you go out to, in the sun, some antioxidants might reduce a sunburn, but their effect on DNA damage is probably nothing. And it may actually be, make things worse in terms of you getting skin cancer later on. So we don't really recommend that you take antioxidants. How about NSAIDs? So your ibuprofen, things like naproxen, diclofenac. Well, these have been studied in randomized trials. NSAIDs, antihistamines, oral steroids are basically ineffective. They don't shorten the duration of sunburn and they don't make you better. So I don't recommend them. Now, if I had to put one of these sunscreens on, there's often this warning that says you have to reapply. And as I read once, it had something to do with mean erythema dose and how long these sunscreens are actually effective until they make you red. Could you clarify that a little bit? Well, you, you mentioned this mean erythema dose. So that's the MED, and this is something that we use. It, it also helps you figure out what the SPF is, and we'll, we'll get to that too. So when you, when you buy a, a sunscreen, it's got some mention of SPF, and that's sun protect, protective factor. And that is based on how long it's gonna take your skin to turn red. And this gets to really what the, what the impact or the effect of a, a sunscreen is. Sunscreens are to prevent the red erythema or the sunburn, the physical effects of sunburn. That's what sunscreens are for. So first you have to know, well, how long would it take you to get skin reddening if you didn't, didn't wear any sunscreen? And that is this mean erythema dose in the absence of, of sunscreen. So it's the smallest duration or amount of UV radiation that causes a discernible amount of dermal erythema or redness, and you measure it in time. So for me, for instance, I probably get a sunburn on my uh, untanned skin in about 20 minutes. If I, were, if I put on an SPF 10 sunscreen, that might give me uh, 200 minutes of protection. So this, this that ratio of the MED, of wearing the, uh, wearing the sunscreen, 
divided by the MED of unprotected skin is what gives you an SPF. Of course, many sunscreens give you a lot more than 10, and I have some in my car right now, which is SPF 50. I think we have some SPF 100 around here in the house. So those are gonna give you even a greater de degree of protection, but you, you asked about reapplying. I think the key here is that the SPF is sort of a best case scenario. It assumes that you put enough of it on, you put it on before you got exposed to sun, and that you reapplied it so it's able to do its magic. And just because it might give me 10 times, an SPF 10 might give me 10 times the degree of time in the sun without getting a sunburn or redness, it doesn't mean that I get an extra duration of time when I put it on after I start turning red. That's just not the way it works. Hmm. So then I'm gonna just buy SPF 100. I'm not gonna take any chances, but somebody told me once that there isn't much difference between, say, a sunscreen of SPF 50 and an SPF of 100, that you're actually into the diminishing returns numbers. Is that true? I think that is true. Dermatologists will often tell you that you should just pick the highest SPF that you can find, and there may be some logic to that, but when, when you look at uh, an SPF of, let's say, SPF 15 or an SPF of 30, these are going to block somewhere on the order of 98 plus percentage of the UV going to your skin. So when you go from an SPF of 30 to SPF 60, you really are getting a dim diminishing return for bang for your buck. You can get a lot of protection from an SPF 30, and a good rule of thumb for most people with a typical skin, uh, SPF 30 or above is going to do the trick. So Joe, you and I like to go to areas where there's a lot of jungles and with jungles comes mosquitoes. You're right, Daryl. So a lot of places we like to go to, including Hawaii, for instance, you know, one of the amazing things about Hawaii is prior to European colonization, there were no mosquitoes. In fact, there were no thorny plants, but one of the things that early settlers and some of the missionaries and sailors that came to Hawaii is they brought with them mosquitoes. So a lot of places that we like to go diving, mosquito-borne illness is a problem. There are malarious areas, but even more common in the Caribbean, for instance, are things like dengue fever, and more recently, something called the chikungunya virus, also carried by the same mosquito, that's Aedes aegypti. And there have been outbreaks in lots of places. And Aedes aegypti is a problem, of course, in Hawaii, also in the Southern United States, in Florida, it's a, it's a big issue. Many of the places we go, of course, we're gonna to wanna to protect ourselves from mosquitoes as well as going diving. So that raises an issue. What, what do I do with my DEET? Do I put it on before I put on my sunscreen or do I, is it not a problem? And the reality is that, yeah, you have to pay attention to this stuff. DEET reduces the efficacy of sunscreen by about 30%. So that might be an argument for using a higher SPF sunscreen. Give yourself some buffer zones. And it's gonna, there's gonna be a trade-off in a lot of places between mosquito protection and sunburn protection. And I do recommend that you put on uh, your DEET uh, before you put on your sunscreen. To clarify, the International Society of Travel Medicine says DEET first, but the important thing is to give time for the product to permeate the skin. Sunscreens that have DEET significantly reduce the effects of both. And what some experts say is you wait five to 10 minutes, maybe up to 30 minutes between DEET and the sunscreen application. So go out, mate, and be safe. I tell you, I pick up one of these sunscreens and it's like a chemical factory. Could you kind of break down some of the agents that are used for sun protection? Yeah, so we'll keep this brief. Basically, there's two flavors of sunscreens. There are the chemical sunblockers. So these are filters and chem chemical products like oxybenzone, benzophenones, of course, PABA is one that was used back in the day. These block UVA or UVB or both. 
But the other kind is physical blockers. And these are the, these are the sunscreens that might appear white or colored on your skin, like when we use a preparation containing titanium or zinc. So they can be a little opaque, at least traditionally they were. Now there are sunscreen physical blockers that contain microsphere preparations. They don't appear white on your skin. There are some good uses of both these things, but the problem is that both the titanium and the sunscreen chemical filters are harmful for corals. We know that the chemical filters might be a little bit worse in this regard. So there have been some sunscreens marketed to be safe for corals, but both of the common kinds, the physical blockers and the chemical filters, they both can cause damage to growing corals. And that's an issue for divers. The splendid declaration of human rights is already 200 years old and makes no mention of the rights of future generations. The Cousteau Society launches a worldwide petition to urge our leaders to solemnly declare the rights of our descendants. I understand that whether it's these physical sunscreens or these chemical sunscreens, they both work on UVA and UVB. They work really well. However, my understanding is that physical blockers like the titanium or zinc, they work by actually dispersing the ultraviolet rays. Do you know anything about that? Well, this is how I understand this. UVB is the kind of UV radiation that causes erythema or the sunburn. UVA are the wavelengths that are responsible for photoaging, wrinkling of the skin. They can cause sunburn. Both UVA and UVB over the long term can raise your risk of cancer. So we want to block these things. So how do the sunscreens do it? Well, the physical blockers, the titanium and the zinc, they actually reflect your UVA and UV UVB back into the environment, back towards space. So they physically reflect it back into the environment. The chemical filters like oxybenzone, they work differently and they actually convert the UV radiation to longer wavelengths of in the spectrum. So they actually cause a change of UVA and UVB to infrared. And theoretically that might cause an increase of sensation of heat on the skin, but I think that in practice that's, that's really not an issue. Oh, so I guess I can't improvise if I forget my stove. I can't put some of these sunscreens uh -huh. on my food and heat it up. Ah, great, great idea. idea. Improvise. Great. All right. Supposedly, Cousteau and his cronies invented the idea of putting walkie-talkies into the helmet. But we made ours with a special rabbit ear on the top so we could pipe in some music. Okay, what about some of more physical barriers such as lycra, hats, wetsuits? What do you think about that? I think they're an excellent idea. Back when I was in college, I used to go down to Baja, California and spend a lot of time out in the water fishing. And I put on sunscreen with the highest SPF that I could get around. But with the amount of sweating I did and the physical activity, I got burned badly and sunscreen just didn't do the trick. So what I learned from that experience is that really clothing is better. If you're a diver, wear a rash guard made out of lycra or spandex. These provide a great degree of sun protection, SPF equivalent of 50 plus. And of course they have the side benefit of pre pre preventing you from getting stung by corals or jellyfish. Wetsuits do exactly the same thing. When you're on the water, you gotta wear a hat. So a wide brimmed hat is preferred over a baseball cap. Baseball cap wearers classically will, get, they'll protect a sunburn on their forehead, but they still might get you know, a sunburn on their lower lip. Their ears and their neck are not protected. So there are some, hats that you can wear in the water just to just to be aware of of course divers are not going to use those typically but surfers might and then finally i started off this whole conversation talking about my experience getting uv keratitis i got snow blindness 
And that can happen on the water too. So be sure to wear your sunglasses. Look for sunglasses that advertise UV protection and these will protect you from UV keratitis. They may not protect from some of the long-term side effects of exposure to sun and UV like cataracts and these pterygia, little red growths that occur over the white part of your eye but they are excellent, they're highly recommended, and even contact lenses will provide you some protection, but I think you should probably wear sunglasses. That's great, and I know that with this sunglass selection, you have to make sure that it actually states 100% UV protection, so. Final thing I'll say about all these alternatives to sunscreens are that they're not gonna kill, kill your corals. So if you care about preserving coral life in your dive site, it's a great idea to cover up using lycra sun, and wetsuits and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's becoming a problem, uh, saving the corals. Well, thanks so much, Joe. Hey, thank you, Daryl. All right. Great conversation. I loved it, and I appreciate the chance to talk to your audience. Okay. Be sunny, be red. Bye. And now, let's go to our journal club. We will discuss cervical spine alignment in skiers and snowboarders with suspected head and neck injuries comparison of lateral c-spine radiographs before and after removal and implications for ski patrol transport in the september edition of the journal the author is dr david russ who will be interviewed by the one and only magnificent dr jake jensen our wilderness and austere medicine fellow jake introduce yourself in one word please yeah, well, one word might make it a little difficult, but yeah, I'm the, as Daryl mentioned, I'm the Wilderness Medicine Fellow here at UNM, really looking forward to the upcoming year. I just completed my residency in Peoria, Illinois, in emergency medicine. Again, I don't have one real word to describe me, uh, except that right now I've got four kids at home and work late, and I kind of feel like hunted game, so I found a quiet spot in the house. Hopefully they won't interrupt. Take it away, Dr. Rust. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Duluth, Minnesota. I actually trained at the University of New Mexico and uh, did the wilderness medicine program there. And then I did a sports medicine fellowship in Minneapolis, and now I'm up in Duluth, Minnesota. So I have a background uh, a little bit in wilderness medicine, a little bit in spinal care from care of spine injuries during my residency and then now i'm practicing sports medicine and i also work as a medical advisor for the spirit mountain ski patrol in here in uh in duluth now the intro dave the idea for the study came from an annual review of our policies and procedures uh, for our ski patrol at spirit mountain here in duluth uh, minnesota where i volunteer as the medical advisor and when I took over that position in 2014, the policy at that time was that all patients that were transported by toboggan were to have their helmets removed and be put in a cervical collar by the ski patrol. And, and it was felt that that practice was outdated and needed to be reviewed. So as an orthopedic surgeon with a specialty training in sports medicine, I was familiar with the studies that were performed on football and hockey players that showed that there's spinal malalignment when you remove their helmets. And so the guidelines at that time were for helmets not to be removed. You just remove their face mask and, and then you transport them to the hospital without removing their helmet. Uh, when I was looking uh, at studies for injured skiers, nothing like that existed. So I thought we could uh, reproduce that study in a pretty straightforward manner and that it would help and strengthen our policy changes. 
So we took 27 healthy ski patrollers to our outdoor emergency care course, which is the training for the National Ski Patrol that we do here. And uh, our student patrollers did a mock rescue and provided spinal stabilization to the volunteers. And we did three different ways of stabilizing. In the first scenario, they left the helmet on and used locks and neck rolls. In the second scenario, they left the helmet on and applied a rigid cervical collar. And then in the final scenario, they performed helmet removal and then put the patient into a cervical collar. And after each of those scenarios, we took a lateral cervical spine x-ray to check their spinal alignment. And the main finding was that we observed nearly 10 degrees of cervical spine hyperextension whenever a person was put into a cervical collar. And when the helmet was removed and a cervical collar was placed, we actually saw nearly 20 degrees cervical spine hyperextension. Whoa, 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 hold the press. These guys found 10 degrees C-spine hyperextension with a helmet and C-collar, but 20 degrees with a C-collar after helmet removal. So considering that there's a number of possible benefits to uh, keeping a skier or snowboarder's helmet on during a rescue, um, as well as some potential negative implications from putting patients into the cervical collars, our conclusion was that this should not be a routine practice. We urge the patrollers to use caution and restraint before they remove their patient's helmet. And we also uh, urge them to use cervical collars only when there's a high index of suspicion or a cervical spine injury and when the rescuers are unable to protect or adequately stabilize the spine without a collar. But in the paper, you did mention some of the limitations of the study, one of them being the controlled setting under which it occurred. You also said that in reality, patients might be found in odd positions, buried and tangled, tree wells, require some sort of extrication, or they might be combative. Oftentimes in these situations, responders are really quick to place a seat collar kind of just in case or to be safe when they're unsure of things. Many are also more prone to place one on a combative patient, which we've all experienced. So this does not Rescuer should put the a cervical collar on if there's a high index of suspicion or injury based on the history, the mechanism, and the evaluation of the patient, and if it is determined that the patient and or the rescuers cannot adequately protect and stabilize the spine without a collar. And I think you, you hit it on the practice or, um, you know, just to be safe. Um, and I think that happens a lot. There is that uh, as a rescuer, you can provide uh, a safe and adequate support and, uh, and stabilize the spine without using a, a cervical collar. And if you can get them to the hospital quickly and safely without a collar in place, then that, that should be the best practice. Because once a patient's put into a cervical collar, it then becomes a situation where there's often fear of moving that collar. Uh, and that can lead to patients getting unnecessary imaging studies when they get to the hospital. Uh, they can have delays in removing that complications just from being put into a collar when they didn't even need to be put in. And I would just caution against using blanket terms. So saying every combative patient needs a cervical collar or that every patient that's rescued from a tree well should be put in a collar before you get them out. Because I think every single situation warrants uh, an individual assessment and the approach that the rescuer should be taking is 
they should ask the question, can I safely help this person and stabilize them without having to put them in a cervical collar? And if the answer is yes, then more likely than not, you don't need to put them in the cervical collar. There's a growing body of literature showing that full immobilization, you know, not as necessary as one thought and that much of that concept of full spinal immobilization was kind of predicated from philosophical, theoretical, and medical legal grounds despite a lack of evidence giving strong support for its practice. And I know that a lot of us as first responders in the emergency department, other ambulatory settings have sometimes fallen victim to somebody coming in with the collar already in place and have been somewhat hesitant to remove that even though it's likely they could have been cleared initially. So thank you. I think you did a great job with that explanation. Again, as you said, this study sorry, took place in ideal settings, but a lot of individuals enjoy backcountry skiing amongst our audience and the population in general. What recommendations might you have to immobilize the sea spine in this population in an austere environment when they might not have some of the supplies or equipment that were available in the study, such as backboards, blocks, um, rolls to place under the sea spine, what would you recommend for these scenarios where there's concern for an injury? With backcountry skiing and with, as with in a lot of other remote wilderness sports activities, and we do, and we, we change our policies actually with our downhill mountain bike patrol that we have here because we have lift access to downhill mountain biking. The threshold for a formal rescue operation becomes much higher. So if a patient is alert and they can safely protect themselves, then they should be allowed and encouraged to, to ski down or hike out on their own power with or without uh, assistance uh, to do so. Um, but in cases where it's deemed unsafe and the patient really can't protect themselves and a formal rescue operation is necessary, I think the next important step is to determine how you're going to transport that patient. Because if, it's an, if an airlift is not going to be necessary, and then you may be looking at a pretty long, lengthy, and rugged transportation. And that can be a significant challenge, especially when you're trying to somebody who has a suspected uh, head and neck injury. My advice is be creative and use good common sense. Keep their helmet on. This will protect their head. It'll keep them warm and it'll pad, uh, and you can add padding to the neck and occiput area. And you can also use the helmet as a point to help stabilize their head and neck area, straps, without putting uh, straps and devices right onto their uh, skin. Ski patrols and a jacket or a backpack can be used to make a modified uh, stretcher and, uh, and kind of a mock spinal board if you're going to do that. And, and just keep in mind that that most spinal injuries, even severe ones, are unlikely to worsen just from the transportation. So the main goal should be to get them to the hospital quickly and avoid an unnecessarily delay to get them care. Based on your study and some of the other studies you'd mentioned in discussion earlier and in the paper, would you be comfortable in your own practice applying these recommendations to other helmeted sports, such as mountain biking, rock and ice climbing, whitewater rafting, et cetera? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, uh, with that conclusion. Um, our findings, I think, can be used for most sports helmets. I was actually really surprised to see how similar our numbers were to the studies that were done on American football players. Because in that, in those, the conclusion in that, those sports was that it was the shoulder pads that were causing the malalignment, and that's why you don't want to remove it. But I don't really think that the shoulder pads really changed the alignment that much. 
Um, I think it has much more to do with the, with the helmet. Um, I think the alignment of the spine is better in a helmet. And if you think about it, we all sleep with a pillow underneath our, our head. So we're used to having something behind the back of our head to give it some support and lift it and tilt the head a little bit more forward. Um, and that's exactly what a helmet does. So there's no reason in any of those other sports to routinely take a helmet off uh, when you suspect a, an injury. And I would, I would say right now, the National Athletic Trainers Association has uh, an update to their guidelines. They recommend an all or none technique for removing helmet and all sports equipment, uh, which means that you should get the patient into a, a stable and secure environment, and then a team of rescuers could remove their helmet, any shoulder pads or jackets or equipment that's going to get in the way and need to come off. And you do it all at once so that you minimize the amount of manipulation you're doing to the spine. That's the current recommendation. And I think that recommendation can basically use for any sports that we're taking care of. So it, it sounds like, you know, if many of us weren't convinced before, it sounds like we are now that we're going to plan on keeping this, this helmet on. To follow up on that, in the paper, you did mention some absolute indications and relative indications for removing the helmet. Would you mind touching on that briefly and maybe give us some preferred techniques, pearls, things to avoid when it comes to removing the helmet when a patient does arrive uh, to an area where they will receive definitive care? The most common technique is a two or three person technique where basically one rescuer is at the top of the head, holds the, the helmet, lifts the ear uh, pieces apart. The next rescuer slides their hands underneath the, the neck inside the helmet. And then the uh, top rescuer uh, removes the helmet. And then uh, once the helmet is off, the top rescuer then uh, places their hands back underneath the uh, head and takes over the spinal alignment, which is normally where spinal alignment is maintained from the top of the patient down. Um, in terms of the, uh, the contraindications and absolute uh, indications, um, the, uh, the main uh, uh, indications where you need to remove a helmet are if you, if you can't get an airway. So if a, if a patient has a, a helmet that has a face mask in place, obviously that has to come off if you have any concern about the, uh, the airway and you need to get access to their airway. If you have an open wound with bleeding or cerebrospinal fluid underneath uh, from the helmet, then the helmet needs to be removed so you can assess that open wound and provide care to that open wound underneath the helmet. Um, and then if you have a severely damaged helmet, a helmet that's been cracked or is very loose fitting, then that's not enough to provide stability to the head, then that helmet should be removed so that you can safely stabilize their head. Good. I think you had also mentioned a few relative indications, such as like an unorthodox helmet shape size or attachments. When I see that, I think of, you know, the ski guys that are trying to break records where trying to lie them supine in that helmet is in no way going to be beneficial to them and exert a great deal of flexion. And you also mentioned patient comfort if they're alert and sounds like someone that might be able to maintain their spine on their own. So all good things to remember, if at all possible, that we do want to keep that helmet on. Thank you very much, Dave. I got one last quick question for you. Just to summarize, what are just quickly the main take-home points you want our audience to remember? The biggest takeaways from this study would be, number one, removing a helmet or putting a cervical collar on results in small but statistically significant increased extension of the cervical spine. 
Number two, ski helmets should not be removed routinely during patrol rescues unless indicated by specific criteria. And we touched on those, but they include severely damaged loose-fitting helmet, bleeding or cerebrospinal fluid from under the helmet, restriction of airway access, or a non-conforming helmet style or attachment like a, a GoPro that would not allow you to safely transport them. And three, a cervical collar should not be placed routinely, but should only be used if there is a high clinical index of suspicion and adequate protection and stability of the spine cannot be achieved without using I think to reiterate what Dave said, the biggest takeaway point here would be doing what's best for the patient, which is minimizing the amount of movement that we induce when transporting them to definitive care. And that it, if it is possible, we should keep a helmet in place. And if we're able to immobilize the C-spine through other means, whether it's blocks or a semi-rigid roll underneath the cervical spine, to utilize those methods prior to placing a patient in the C-collar. I also think one important thing to remember that Dave kind of touched on is that there will be certain circumstances we may encounter where it might be hard to get a full evaluation and to determine whether or not we need to fully immobilize the C-spine, such as a patient that might be entangled and trapped in a tree. Well, and I completely agree. We do not need to immobilize these patients just to be safer as a precaution. But on that same note, if there's no other way by which we can remove that patient safely and adequately maintain the C-spine, in my personal belief, I don't feel it's inappropriate to place a C-collar on as we extricate and remove the patient and then reevaluate that patient after we've gotten them out to where they can be fully evaluated. Just because we put a C-collar on in an effort to safely remove them doesn't mean they have to keep that C-collar in place. Mainly it means to be as safe as possible while we extricated them and we can go about and reevaluate them and potentially clear their collar once we are able to get that full evaluation in. You just described exactly what I think is important, which is you're thinking clearly about reasons for putting it on and not putting it on and not just doing it just to be safe. The key there is that whoever the lead rescuer is, whoever's taking charge in that situation has to make that determination. And, uh, and if you're thoughtful about it and, you, and you're not just doing it as a routine practice, I think you're going to be on the right track. And here's a parting shot, Dave. It's up to the rescuers to determine if they need it or not. And, and what I would uh, reiterate is just the approach that the rescuer should take, which is asking the question, can I safely help this person without putting them in a cervical collar? And if the answer is yes, then you probably don't need to put that on. Well, folks, that's it. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Jake. Yeah, thank you for setting this up. Good to see you, Daryl. Bye. And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by Elsevier. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.